Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to Done and Done. I'm Alicia, your hostess on this journey, all things Dominic Dunn, where nothing is linear and everything is connected. Thank you for joining me today on this episode in which we continue Capote's Coterie, the literary and social life of the boy wonder writer Truman Capote. We will be getting to Truman Capote in New York City and Greenwich, Connecticut, and his next decade of time in short order. However, when we talk about Truman Capote collecting himself a coterie, a group of common-minded people to surround himself with, we must talk, we couldn't miss talking about Truman Capote's original swan. If Truman Capote's mother, Lily Mae Falk, was his first swan, Carol Marcus is the original. Her name might not be familiar to you now, but hers is a story that is unforgettable. Carol's life, her loves, her friendships, not just with Truman, but her besties too, Gloria Vanderbilt and Una O'Neill Chaplin. We have covered Gloria Vanderbilt in great detail on Done and Done, Check out the whole Vanderbilt family values arc back from episodes 36 to 42, complete with all the details of Little Gloria, Big Gloria, and her Vanderbilt relatives. We will talk a little bit about Una O'Neill today, but these three, Carol, Gloria, and Una, are the friendship triangle to be envied. But it is the friendship and the connection between Truman Capote and Carol Marcus that I think is truly incredible. Carol Marcus is one of the main inspirations for Holly Golightly from Breakfast at Tiffany's, certainly the most recognizable real-life inspiration, especially if you know what you're looking for. Today, we're going to reveal it all about Carol's story, her relationship with her very best friends, and her relationship with Truman, too. Everything really does connect. Before we begin our episode today, I do have the spyglass here to give some huge thanks to Cat T, our most recent friend over at patreon.com slash done and done, getting ad-free and early episodes, bonus content too. So grateful for you, Cat, and the whole community supporting the podcast over there. Tremendous thanks as always. And Madam Mango. Thank you for the very kind review on Apple Podcasts. I was so touched by your thoughtfulness, and I really appreciate you taking the time to give a little love to Done and Done. Investigators, thank you again for being here and tuning in today. Today's story is one of my all-time favorites. And to understand Carol's story, I think, is key to understanding the younger and older Truman Capote as well as the literary delight of Holly Golightly, too. Let's investigate. Carol's life started out in an exceptionally different way than how she lived most of it. Her beautiful mother, Rochine Doré, was 16 years old when she got pregnant with Carol. And quickly enough, Rochine was thrown out of the house. Carol never knew who her biological father was, although the most often believed potential father was actor Leslie Howard, perhaps most famously known for his portrayal of Ashley Wilkes in Gone with the Wind. Carol was born on September 11, 1924, in the Lower East Side of New York City, just a scant 19 days before the birth of Truman. It does not take long for another man to fall in love with Carol's mom. Carol's mom was quite a looker. The new guy and Carol's mom do marry, and Carol's mom is pregnant again shortly thereafter. 
When Roisin and Carol's stepfather brought the new baby girl home from the hospital, Carol's new stepfather pointed to Carol in her crib in the corner of the room and said, Now we can put that one up for adoption. Roisin, Carol's mother, said, Hold the baby just for a minute. She then grabbed her coat and purse, wrapped Carol up in a blanket, and carried her out right then and never went back. They left the baby girl with her father, who immediately put the new child in a foster home. This was during the Depression, and let me tell you, friends, it will get worse before it gets better. To support herself and Carol, Roisin works in a hat factory, and she can't care for Carol while working the long hours and doesn't really have any family support, so Roisin will board Carol out in foster homes. Carol remembers these foster homes as bleak and ugly places, full of faceless, impoverished families just trying to survive. Here, Carol learns how to be there without being there. One day, Carol was taken to visit her mother, Roisin, and there was a man sitting in the living room waiting for her to dress. He asked if she was Carol, and when Carol realized this man was smiling and kind, she reluctantly spoke with him. This man's name was Charles Marcus, and Roisin had met him on a blind date. Carol's life was about to drastically change, as Charles Marcus was an aviation pioneer and co-founder of the Bendex Corporation. Carol's mother, Roisin, and Charles Marcus married soon thereafter. Carol describes the change in her life as, quote, going to sleep in Dickensian squalor and waking up in the Queen's box on opening day of the Ascot races near London. Carol and her mother moved into Charles Marcus's 18-room duplex at 1107 Fifth Avenue, the very same building in which Marjorie Merriweather Post lived. Carol and her mother were suddenly swept into a life of luxury with servants, beautiful jewelry, and expensive schools. This is very, very similar to what is about to happen to our young Truman Capote. There is very much a shared connection between the childhoods of Truman and Carol. They both find themselves in a rags-to-riches switch in their stations, as well as the complications that that particular kind of switch brings. Carol says that her hour-to-hour worries were over, but the worry that this new life and its security would suddenly disappear were never over. That never ends for Carol. Two years after Rasheen and Charles get married, Carol's mother finally gets around to telling her new husband that she had another daughter who was in foster care. The family then goes to retrieve Carol's younger half-sister, Eleanor. Eleanor had been lucky because she had loved the family that she was with and had been very well taken care of. Carol said about Eleanor, She came home so pretty and plump, she looked like Snow White. That is one of the nicer threads of the fairy tale for Carol at this point, but oh, what a light Carol was. And Truman could see it too, and he did. Carol Marcus will meet Truman when they were both about 13 years old. Truman came over every afternoon after school to visit Carol's younger sister, Eleanor. Carol, you see, was always studious and eager to please her parents. She would come home from school every day and immediately begin studying. Carol would then run a bath and change for dinner. One day, though, when Carol is getting out of the bath, Carol hears a noise and looks up to find a face with pink cheeks, yellow hair, and the bluest eyes she had ever seen looking at her through the window. Carol screamed. Naturally, you probably would. As Carol is trying to decide if she should grab the blankets off her bed to cover herself or get her robe, instead the face said, Stop! Stop! He continued his appeal with, Please don't move. 
please, you are directly from the moon. I have never seen anyone look like you. Your skin is made of moonbeams. You are lit from within. No, no, don't move. Stay as you are exactly. Please, I ask you this with all my heart. Obviously, Carol was stunned. Too shocked to say anything, she just stood there as he had asked. And then the face continues. You must never forget that you do not belong here. You can see it yourself if you look in the mirror. You are moonlight, no question about it. That's where you are from. I have watched you for so many afternoons just to see the moonbeams. You are directly from the moon. How did you ever get here? After that day, Truman came to see Carol almost every day. They would go on walks and dance to the hit parade on the radio. Carol said that Truman would always say the sweetest things to her like, You are magic and it is a valentine to be near you. They had a deep and lifelong friendship. Carol was one of the few friends Truman had until he died. She said that until the end of his life, he never forgot to greet her with, Yes, sweetness, you are still from the moon. Of their relationship, Carol said, I told him all of my secrets. He told me some of his. He might have told a few more secrets of Carol's, at least in literary form. In addition to Lily May, Truman's mother, there are a number of other ladies that blend into Truman Compote's unforgettable 1958 novella, Breakfast at Tiffany's, and its unforgettable main character of Holly Golightly. There is so much of Lily May Falk's youth that is in the novella. Holly Golightly, her previous life character before she runs away to the city, is named Lula May. This whole arc is revealed when Doc comes to find Lula May in the big city. He says to the narrator, Her name isn't Holly. Her name is Lula May. There is a little bit of repetition here, but listen to this bit that weaves back into the backstory for Lily May last week. This is from Breakfast at Tiffany's as Doc explains to the narrator. Now, Lula May and her brother, them two begin living with some mean no-count people a hundred miles east of Tulip. She had good cause to run off from that house. She didn't have none to leave mine. Twas her home. He leaned his elbows on the counter and, pressing his closed eyes with his fingertips, sighed. She plumped out, too, to be a real pretty woman. Lively, too. Talky as a jaybird. With something smart to say on every subject. Better than the radio. First thing you know, I'm out picking flowers. I tamed her a crow and taught it to say her name. I showed her how to play the guitar. Just to look at her made the tears spring to my eyes. The night I proposed, I cried like a baby. She said, what do you want to cry for, Doc? Of course we'll be married. I've never been married before. Well, I had to laugh and hug and squeeze or never been married before. He chuckled, chewed on his toothpick a moment. Don't tell me that woman wasn't happy, he said challengingly. We all doted on her. She didn't have to lift a finger except to eat a piece of pie, except to comb her hair and send away for all the magazines. We must have had a hundred dollars worth of magazines come into that house. Ask me, that's what done it. Looking at show-off pictures, reading dreams. That's what started her walking down the road. Every day she'd walk a little further, a mile, and come home. Two miles and come home. One day she just kept on. He put his hands over his eyes again and his breathing made a ragged noise. The crow I give her went wild and flew away. All summer you could hear him, in the yard, in the garden, in the woods. All summer that damn bird was calling, Lula May, Lula May. Lula May, Holly's previous life character, 
very much is Lily Mae Falk. And the whole work of Breakfast at Tiffany's, I really do recommend. For a 30,000-word novella, it is a superb piece of writing. But Truman's mother is only one of the women in his life that he will reference in this novella. Another is Carol Marcus. She is the inspiration for Holly, physically, and I believe in a few other ways. Remember, Truman Capote was not a fan of the choice of Audrey Hepburn for the Holly Golightly movie role. Truman Capote would have much preferred his friend and a very different kind of actress, Marilyn Monroe, for that part. I can only imagine what Marilyn would have done with that role. And I can only imagine what Truman Capote would have done with scripting the film version. If so, Marilyn and Truman affecting those, I do think the movie would be a very different thing. And this is no shade on the film version of Breakfast at Tiffany's. Audrey Hepburn is delightful. The costumes are incredible. The sets are amazing. It is quite a scene, but please know the movie is not the novella. Nowhere near. Both are good, but they are not the same thing, not the same plot, nowhere close. So when Truman Capote is describing his Holly Golightly in his novella, it is Carol Marcus. It has to be who he is describing. You just heard all about the Maid of Moonbeams. This next piece is from Breakfast at Tiffany's upon the narrator's first look at Holly. I went out into the hall and leaned over the banister just enough to see without being seen. She was still on the stairs, and now she reached the landing, and the ragbag colors of her boy's hair, tawny streaks, strands of albino blonde and yellow, caught the hall light. It was a warm evening, nearly summer, and she wore a slim, cool black dress, black sandals, a pearl choker. For all her chic thinness, she had an almost breakfast cereal air of health, a soap and lemon cleanness, a rough pink darkening in the cheeks. Her mouth was large, her nose upturned. A pair of dark glasses blotted out her eyes. It was a face beyond childhood, yet this side of belonging to a woman. I thought her anywhere between 16 and 30. As it turned out, she was shy two months of her 19th birthday. Friends, this is Carol Marcus, maybe described a bit older from that young girl made of moonbeams that Truman Capote witnessed so long ago, but isn't that an amazing description she had an almost breakfast cereal air of health, a soap and lemon cleanness, a rough pink darkening in the cheeks. This is Carol Marcus, Truman Capote's original swan. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. But you do not get Carol in your life without her two friends, which make up their infamous trio. Oh, I am a sucker for these intricate and supportive circles of the feminine. This trio, Carol, Gloria, and Una, are bonded and eternal. Carol will meet her two best friends early in life. Her lifelong best friends, as we know, Gloria Vanderbilt and Una O'Neill. Carol said it was the bond of orphans, as none of the three girls had fathers, but really each in their own way. Carol never knew her father. Gloria Vanderbilt grieved for her father her entire life. Gloria believed that she remembered him even though she was only a young baby when he died. Gloria always believed her father loved her, 
Again, go back to those episodes about the poor little rich girl, her life, her infamous custody trial. Una O'Neill, her dad is the famous playwright Eugene O'Neill. Eugene O'Neill had left Una's mother when she was practically a baby, about two years old, and Una rarely saw Eugene O'Neill after that. Una did not ever believe her father loved her. Carol will say she was the luckiest of her three friends with their individual father situations. Carol never knew her real father, but had been rescued in a way by a wonderful stepfather who she happily called Daddy, Charles Marcus. Carol describes their bond as all three trying to make up for the early years of darkness. The three all had a desire and need for only one thing, love. Carol said they all spent their lives in pursuit of it. Carol admits that it didn't always work, but that it did sometimes. The bond between the three was unbreakable, even after Una's death. Carol first met Gloria at a party that she had at her Aunt Gertrude's house in Westbury, Long Island. Carol said that Gloria was always more sophisticated than her and Una. Carol said about Gloria that she was, quote, lovely, tender-hearted, and sweet, unquote. Carol met Una O'Neill through activities their mothers made them attend, which were considered proper for girls of their age and position. Carol and Una, though, hated these forced activities. Neither one like it. They feel like wallflowers, so they will take solace in each other. Throughout their teen years, the girls had a sweet friendship, doing normal young girl things. Carol and Una were both very studious, and they often did their homework together after school. The girls would spend hours and hours discussing books and writers and different theories. Carol recalls Una having comments about any author Carol was reading. Regarding T.S. Eliot, Una had said, You're wasting your time with him. He's an anti-Semite. If Carol were reading Ernest Hemingway, Una would tell her that she did not like the fake hair on his chest. However, Carol did not read William Soroyan because she thought he was very boring and very dead. Hold on to that name, William Soroyan. In 1941, when the girls were still teenagers, we're talking 16-year-old teenagers here, Gloria Vanderbilt will go to California to spend time with her mother. On an October afternoon, Gloria called her best friend Carol to say she had found the man of her dreams, someone named Pat DeSico, and they were going to get married in December. Gloria asked Carol to come to California to be one of the bridesmaids. Carol was surprised but excited for Gloria and wanted to know everything about her fiancé. Gloria explained that Pat DeSico was just wonderful. He was handsome and worked for Howard Hughes. According to Gloria, Pat DeSico was divine. Now, friends, Pat DeSico was way, way older than Gloria Vanderbilt. He is nearing 40 years old to her 16, 17-year-old teenage status. Pat was already done with his marriage to Thelma Todd, the ice cream blonde. Thelma Todd has already passed away too, perhaps having something to do with Pat DeSico. Not a great guy, kind of a gangster, kind of a mobster. Pat DeSico also is a cousin to Albert Broccoli, the producer of the James Bond films. Carol flies into California in December to be in Gloria's wedding. When Carol meets Gloria's mother, this again is Gloria Vanderbilt, Big Gloria, Carol described her as very passive in a lovely way, beautiful and sweet. There were many parties, as you would expect, leading up to the wedding filled with Hollywood actors and other famous people. The ushers at the wedding were some of Hollywood's most handsome leading men. Carol's escort for all the wedding events was Errol Flynn. Not too bad. 
We know from past episodes that Gloria's first marriage to Pat DeSico is <laughs> not great. In fact, it is downright terrible. Pat DeSico routinely abuses Gloria, both physically and mentally. Pat's pet name for Gloria is Fatsy Rue. It's terrible. Again, go back to those episodes for a little Gloria Vanderbilt dive in the Done and Done catalog. We have unveiled her full story. Want to take us back to Carol here? Because when Carol first meets Pulitzer Prize winner William Saroyan for the first time, Carol is shocked to find William Saroyan attractive. He was brooding and passionate with black hair and eyes. Carol said of that first meeting, he looked like a gangster, sinister and dark. Ooh, I thought, he's rotten. It's wonderful. When Saroyan shook Carol's hand in introduction, he said, You look like vanilla ice cream and pink rose petals. William Saroyan was 33. Carol was 16. In his defense, only in a mild way, Carol lied and added two years to her age, saying she was 18. But Carol claimed her whole life she fell in love with Saroyan that very night. She says she fell in love with everything about him. His looks, his scent, his sense of humor, but most especially his words. She said she had never heard anyone use words that way, except for her friend, Truman Capote. Truman Capote does, I think, give his friend Carol another nod here in Breakfast at Tiffany's, where the narrator of the novella, this is Truman's character, and Holly Golightly finally meet. The narrator in the book has seen Holly Golightly. He's not exactly stalked her, but he's very aware of what Holly Golightly is up to. But their first meeting here, holy cats, so many shades to the very first meeting in real life of Truman and Carol and also a reference to Carol's future husband. This is from Breakfast at Tiffany's. But our acquaintance did not make headway until September, an evening with the first ripple chills of autumn running through it. I'd been to a movie, come home and gone to bed with a bourbon nightcap and the newest Seminon. So much my idea of comfort that I couldn't understand a sense of unease that multiplied until... I could hear my heart beating. It was a feeling I'd read about, written about, but never before experienced. The feeling of being watched, of someone in the room. Then, an abrupt rapping at the window, a glimpse of ghostly gray. I spilled the bourbon. It was some little while before I could bring myself to open the window and ask Miss Golightly what she wanted. I've got the most terrifying man downstairs, she said, stepping off the fire escape into the room. I mean, he's sweet when he isn't drunk, but let him start lapping up the vino and, oh God, Kel Beast, if there's one thing I loathe, it's men who bite. She loosened a gray flannel robe off her shoulder to show me evidence of what happens if a man bites. The robe was all she was wearing. I'm sorry if I frightened you, but when the beast got so tiresome, I just went out the window. I think he thinks I'm in the bathroom. Not that I give a damn what he thinks. The hell with him. He'll get tired. He'll go to sleep. My God, he should. Ate martinis before dinner and enough wine to wash an elephant. Listen, you can throw me out if you want to. I've got a gall barging in on you like this, but that fire escape was damned icy, and you looked so cozy like my brother Fred. We used to sleep four in a bed at night, and he was the only one that ever let me hug him on a cold night. By the way, do you mind if I call you Fred? She'd come completely into the room now, and she paused there, staring at me. I'd never seen her before, not wearing dark glasses, and it was obvious now that they were prescription lenses, for without them, her eyes had an assessing squint, like a jeweler's. They were large eyes, a little blue, a little green, and dotted with bits of brown. 
very colored, like her hair, and like her hair, they gave out a lively warm light. I suppose you think I'm very brazen or trefu or something. Not at all. She seemed disappointed. Yes, you do. Everybody does. I don't mind. It's useful. She sat down on one of the rickety red velvet chairs, curved her legs underneath her, and glanced around the room, her eyes puckering more pronouncedly. How can you bear it? It's a chamber of horrors. Oh, you get used to anything, I said, annoyed with myself, for actually, I was proud of the place. This is Truman Capote talking about his place from about 1944-45 on. He, in that year, is going to make a break from Lily May, taking a job in the city and making some of the actual memories that will consist of his future breakfast at Tiffany's. It is a little bit sad. You get used to anything. Kind of a dump, but it's Truman's first dump and he loves it. Back to Holly, continuing from breakfast at Tiffany's. I don't. I'll never get used to anything. Anybody that does, they might as well be dead. Her dispraising eyes surveyed the room again. What do you do here all day? I motion toward a table with books and paper. Write things. Which Truman Capote is doing, but y'all listen to this. Holly continues. <laughs> this is amazing. I thought writers were quite old. Of course, Saroyan isn't old. I met him at a party, and he really isn't old at all. In fact, she mused, if he'd give himself a closer shave. By the way, is Hemingway old? In his forties, I should think. In this year, Ernest Hemingway is in his mid-forties or so, and like Truman Capote is so smart, we have had so many references to so many items from the World War II time frame set in New York City. I think it is the most New York piece of writing that has ever happened. Fiction and fact, fact and fiction. Holly goes on after she gets an answer to this question. Ernest Hemingway is in his 40s from the narrator. Holly continues, that's not bad. I can't get excited by a man until he's 42. I know this idiot girl who keeps telling me I ought to go see a head shrinker. She says I have a father complex, which is so much mared. I simply trained myself to like older men, and it was the smartest thing I ever did. I mean, come on, friends. Truman Capote is talking about this trio with all the absent fathers. He knows all of them. Carol, Gloria, and Uno from their origins as their teenage trio in New York City to Hollywood wives and then divorcees and everything he is writing up to this point is just simply incredible. Holly Golightly will continue to go on and I bring this bit up simply because we're going to be, she's going to ask after one of the writers that is Dominic Dunn's inspiration. Holly continues, how old is W. Somerset mom? I'm not sure, 60-something. That's not bad. I've never been to bed with a writer. No, wait, do you know Benny Shacklett? She frowned when I shook my head. That's funny. He's written an awful lot of radio stuff, but Kel Rat. Tell me, are you a real writer? It depends on what you mean by real. Well, darling, does anyone buy what you write? Not yet. And in 1944, that's the truth. It's coming so soon, though. <laughs> Miriam's coming, other voices, other rooms is coming, and Truman's trajectory from this mid-1940s period is about to go on the rise. But taking us out of Breakfast at Tiffany's and bringing Carol back into her story, meeting the real William Saroyan, not in literary form, Carol is going to be in L.A. for the next month, and she and William Saroyan spend much of their time together. Carol assumes that when she goes back to New York City with her mom, she would not see Saroyan anymore. Carol said he really needed a girl who he could sleep with, and I was too scared to be that girl. Carol, though, will hear from Saroyan again, even once she returns home, and it's not too long before he comes to New York City to see her. 
Carol falls in love with Saroyan quickly and intensely, the way that teenagers do. She recalls the terrible feeling when he was drafted and left for the army. There it was, love. Worst of all, it was first love. There's no love like that. I don't wish it on a soul. I don't hate anyone enough. Ain't that the truth? Bill called her that night on his way to basic training. Kid, I'm not going to make it without you. I love you. I want you to talk to your mother and see if she'll send you out to meet my family so you and I can get married. There's no one like you. And Carol's mother agreed to talk it over with Carol's stepfather and informed Carol that if she went, her parents would have to send a chaperone along with her. When Carol replied, telling her mother that she'd already slept with William Saroyan, everything changed. Her mother now expected that Carol not only went on that trip to meet Bill's family, but that she must also marry him. However, still not wanting Carol to go alone, Una agreed to go. This is why you love your friends. After only spending a short amount of time with William Saroyan, Una said to Carol, You're smart. You see through him, don't you? I wouldn't even have dinner with him if it weren't for you. He's not very nice. What does Una have to say about all of this? It turns out Una has been married back in 1942 on the heels of Gloria's whirlwind romance to an older man, Carol's romance with an older man as well, Una's husband is an older gentleman, one with a name you're probably very familiar with, Charlie Chaplin. Let's back up a little bit and bring Una O'Neill into our story. Charlie Chaplin first met Una O'Neill in 1942 when Chaplin was considering her for a role in one of his films. They hit it off immediately, becoming inseparable and marrying the following year. According to the Chaplin office, Quote, he at last found true happiness, and it seems they had both found their soulmates, despite the fact that Una was only 18 and Charlie was 53. Although O'Neill was older than both of Charlie's first two wives when they married, the couple's age gap did raise many, many eyebrows. Remember that Charlie Chaplin was previously married to Mildred Harris and Lita Gray, those were his first two underage wives. Charlie Chaplin's third wife was Paulette Goddard. Una O'Neill will be Charlie's fourth and final wife. And for Chaplin, this fourth marriage was the happy union he had been waiting for his whole life. Charlie and Una have eight children together. Geraldine, Michael, Josephine, Victoria, Eugene, Jane, Annette, and Christopher. And Una and Charlie remain married until Chaplin's death in 1977. Several of the Chaplin children do go into acting with film and stage actress Geraldine Chaplin and her daughter Una Chaplin, who appeared in Game of Thrones and Taboo, achieving the most recognition. Charlie Chaplin was world famous when they married, but Una O'Neill, the young girl who captures... Chaplin's heart, remember, was the daughter of American playwright Eugene O'Neill. His celebrated plays include The Iceman Cometh and A Long Day's Journey into Night. Eugene O'Neill pulls a nasty on Una's mother. He walks out when Una's just two years old. And Eugene O'Neill, already pretty mad that his teenage daughter was trying to take up acting against his advice, the playwright immediately disowns his daughter upon learning of her marriage to Charlie Chaplin. Keep in mind that Eugene O'Neill and Charlie Chaplin were the same age. But Una, she's a real standout. She has graduated from an exclusive private girls' school in New York City. As noted in her obituary in the New York Times, as a young and somewhat sensitive society beauty, Una O'Neill had her own following. When she visited the West Coast in her brief attempt to become an actress, she received long daily letters from an admirer named Jerry, the author J.D. Salinger. 
Being married to Charlie Chaplin wasn't always easy for Una, but she handled the turbulence that surrounded her husband with quiet grace. Theodore Huff writes in his biography of Charlie Chaplin, The 40s brought Chaplin lawsuits, violent press attacks, general unfavorable publicity, and failure of his only film of the decade. In particular, the press really does have a field day with a paternity suit brought against Charlie Chaplin by aspiring starlet Joan Barry. Although a blood test proved that Charlie Chaplin was not the father of Joan Barry's daughter, a jury decided otherwise, and the judge ordered Chaplin to pay for child support. Una O'Neill was by Charlie Chaplin's side in London for the world premiere of his film Limelight in 1952 when he received word that in order to re-enter the United States, Chaplin would have to submit to questioning about his political views and moral behavior. The couple noped out of that and decided instead to settle in Switzerland with their children and they moved near Lake Geneva. They live here until Chaplin's death. The couple's deep love for each other was unmistakable. Chaplin writes in his autobiography, As I live with Una, the depth and beauty of her character are a continual revelation to me. Even as she walks ahead of me along the narrow sidewalks of Vevey with simple dignity, her neat little figure straight, her dark hair smoothed back, showing a few silver threads, a sudden wave of love and admiration comes over me for all that she is. A lump comes into my throat. Lady Una, as she was known from 1975 onward, when Charlie was knighted, again lived most of her married life on Lake Geneva with her eight children and husband in Switzerland. Charlie Chaplin passes away on Christmas Day in 1977. Una O'Neill Chaplin lives on another 14 years, largely in seclusion in Switzerland, as well as New York City. Una dies in 1991 of pancreatic cancer at the age of 66. Chaplin and O'Neill are buried side by side in Corsier sur Vevey. Her New York Times obituary reported that she was a content wife and mother, never paying any attention to the difference between her age and her husband's. Una said in 1960, He is my world. I've never seen or lived anything else. Una's marriage was the happy one for this trio. First marriages are not a go for Gloria or Carol. Let's continue on with Carol's story here with William Saroyan. I fear you're not going to like any of this, investigators, because Una knows from that first meeting where she is, Carol's chaperone, that William Saroyan is not very nice. She tells her friend so. Regardless of Una's opinion of William Saroyan, Carol was ecstatic the next day when she was able to tell Una that Bill had asked her to marry him. Carol also told Una about the one condition that Bill put on that proposal. Saroyan said he couldn't marry Carol until she proved she could bear children for him. Once she got pregnant, they could get married. Carol, it's a trap. Oh, poor thing. Carol complies and the two were married on February 20th, 1943 in a courthouse ceremony. Everyone Literally everyone thought Carol was making a huge mistake, and it does not take Carol very long to realize that everyone was correct. Their son, Aram, was born September 25, 1943. Saroyan was unkind emotionally to Carol right from the start. Unfortunately, neglect and verbal abuse were soon to follow. For the least infractions, Saroyan would refuse to speak to Carol for days, sometimes even weeks. Insults are a common occurrence. Saroyan especially enjoys telling Carol that she was a liar. He would explode with anger if she ever said that she was too tired to have sex, which she didn't do too often because intercourse was one of the only times that Saroyan was civil to her. 
the relationship is not ideal. Over the course of their relationship, Bill's verbal assaults become nastier, way more frequent, and increasingly cruel. As these things often do, the abuse escalated and becomes physical. Saroyan would hit and choke Carol. He'll even throw her down a flight of stairs in front of her children. Once, when Bill's mother and sister came to visit, they hadn't suspected that Carol had learned to understand and speak Armenian. So Bill's mom and sister would speak Armenian in front of Carol, thinking that she could not understand. Every night at dinner, during that extended stay with her mother-in-law and sister-in-law, Carol would listen to them say terrible things about her. Carol said that that was when she realized what she had gotten into, because not only did she hear the awful things that Bill's mother and sister say about her, but she also hears and fully understands the responses from her husband. Once when Carol had finally had enough, she interrupted one of these dinner conversations. She announced that she'd been taking Armenian lessons and heard and understood everything they'd been saying. I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall to see that. Oh, goodness. In addition to everything else, if you needed an addition to everything else, William Saroyan was a dreadful gambler. He once purposely gambled every single bit of their money away because, oh, goodness, Saroyan was having writer's block and told Carol that he was, quote, a writer that needs to be behind the eight ball. I've never done any writing when I've had money, unquote. Unfortunately, once they were broke, Saroyan will blame Carol for allowing him to do that foolish thing and continue to blame Carol for all the pressure that he was now under. Y'all, the problem is not Carol, just so we're clear on this one. Saroyan goes overseas for a few weeks and Carol decides to get some dirty books to read while he was gone. While reading these romance novels, Carol reads about women having orgasms. And this utterly confuses her because Carol knows that this is absolutely not possible. After reading book after book after book, all explaining accounts of women doing this, Carol gets really, really upset and calls her best friend Gloria. She tells Gloria's butler Orlando that the matter was urgent and he needed to interrupt Gloria from dinner to take the call. Gloria Vanderbilt rushes to the phone, worried that something was going on, that something had happened with her best friend. Carol told Gloria what she had read and Gloria said, yeah, so? And Carol was frustrated and said, what do you mean, yeah, so? You know that girls don't come and Gloria was stunned and told her that, of course. Of course women had orgasms. I mean, Gloria knows. Many years of her loves and affairs covered in previous episodes. But again, who can you really trust with these questions in life but your best girlfriends? It was after six years of marriage and two children that divorce is filed for in the Saroyan marriage, but, but it is Bill who files for the divorce. Slowly, Carol had really just become numb to his behavior and stopped caring. Once she stopped coddling Saroyan and telling him how wonderful he was, he just didn't want to be married to her anymore. When he came home and announced that he was divorcing her, Carol told Saroyan she didn't care and wouldn't bother getting a divorce. She said she would keep the children, but that 30 cents that they had left in the bank was all his. This marriage was done and over in 1949. And pulling Truman in here, Truman is on a brand new voyage by then. Uh, it's all connected to this trio in so many ways. We are going to get there. But for Carol, you're not going to believe it. There is not just the first terrible marriage to William Saroyan, but a second terrible marriage to William Saroyan as well. The first marriage splits in 49. They remarry two years later in 1951 when William Saroyan would convince Carol to marry him 
God knows how, for a second time. He had been pressuring her for a while, and when Soroyan realizes that Carol had been having relationships with other men, well, because, you know, she's divorced, Soroyan is incensed. He will use the children to help manipulate Carol into remarrying him. Soon, Soroyan even recruits Charlie Chaplin, now married to Una O'Neill, to help persuade Carol as well. Charlie Chaplin, not the most helpful thing he's ever done, had prepared a long and intense spiel about why Carol needed to reunite with William. It started with Dear Carol and ended with, You must do the right thing, and there is only one right thing. Go back. Oh, don't do it, Carol. She does, though. The two remarry in 1951, but the dynamic of this second marriage was completely different. Carol was always on guard and ready to retaliate. Doesn't take too long. Carol decides that she doesn't want to live that way. The second go-round only lasts about six months. One day, Carol looks Soroyan in the eye and said, I'm sick of you. Then she left him and never went back. Carol will write, and I think this is completely astute when it comes to marriages. I don't think marriages break up because of what you do to each other. They break up of what you must become in order to stay in them. So what happens after the second terrible marriage with William Soroyan to Carol? After the divorce, Carol and the kids moved into an apartment. Carol's stepfather agrees to pay for the children's health care and educational expenses, but nothing else. Carol supports her family by acting, taking some small parts in television, and in the New York theater scene. Carol also writes a novella, The Secret in the Daisy, under the name Carol Grace during this time. The Secret in the Daisy was based on Carol's childhood. Soroyan and Carol divorce in 1952, so taking Carol through the early 1950s, she will fall in love with screenwriter and film critic James Agee. Agee was sensitive and kind and encouraged Carol with her writing. And although Carol was in love with James Agee, she was afraid to sleep with him because he had already had a heart attack a few years earlier at the young age of 42. Agee would soothingly read to Carol until she fell asleep, which was just wonderful for her. Carol was a lifelong sufferer with insomnia. So sad for Carol, James Agee died of a heart attack in a taxi in May of 1955. A novel of his called A Death in the Family was published posthumously in 1957, winning the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction in 1958. So the best I can figure the year for this, 1955, with the story I'm about to tell you, we're going to bring it back around to Carolyn Truman here. Because if there is, oh gosh, because so many women are tied to Holly Golightly, but again, y'all, Carol is the primary, at least to me. Truman Capote will release Breakfast at Tiffany's in 1958, writing most of it in earnest after the death of his mother, Lily Mae Falk, in 1954. Breakfast at Tiffany's is set in World War II New York City but published again in 58. So you have Truman now with a decade and a half of writing chops and success from Miriam in 1945 to Other Voices, Other Rooms in 1948. In Cold Blood won't be coming until the 1960s though, but Truman, his inspiration, let's get him here, 1955. All of this I think has to do with Carol Marcus. 1955, Truman Capote is beginning writing Breakfast at Tiffany's and gets a whiff of that breakfast-scented lemon cleanness of Carol. In the year 1955, Carol Marcus is in two plays. First up is in January, doing The Time of Your Life. Remember, James Agee passes in May of 1955. Carol will be cast in Will Success Spoil Rock Hunter in October and November of 1955. 
I bring all of this up because let's get back to Truman and Carol here. While in New York doing a play, so sometime this year, Carol would meet her old friend Truman Capote at the Gold Key Club for drinks and long talks. Truman would tell her about his friends Babe Paley, Slim Keith, Phyllis Cerf, and other socialites. Truman Capote is going to get to know Babe Paley back in 1954, thanks to Jennifer Jones, also known as Mrs. David O. Selznick. That arc is coming, but neither of them, Carol nor Truman, slept as much as other people do, and sometimes they just stay out all night. Then in the breaking hours of dawn, they would walk down Fifth Avenue, where a man with a cart would sell them donuts and coffee, and Truman and Carol would continue walking. They would end up in front of Tiffany's, eating their donuts and drinking their coffee. They would stare at the diamonds and gold in the window. Then they would walk to the plaza and sit on the steps of the fountain. During these talks, Truman would encourage Carol to sleep with some of the rich men who were always trying to sleep with her. He told her it would solve a lot of her problems. She told him she couldn't sleep with anyone that she didn't love. Truman told Carol she was naive. Naive maybe, but oh, what memories are on the pages of Breakfast at Tiffany's. Truman Capote will again refer to Carol in one of the main sections of Breakfast at Tiffany's that defines the actual title of the book, Breakfast at Tiffany's. From his novella, she was still hugging the cat. Poor slob, she said, tickling his head. Poor slob without a name. It's a little inconvenient, his not having a name, but I haven't any right to give him one. He'll have to wait until he belongs to somebody. We just sort of took up by the river one day. We don't belong to each other. He's an independent, and so am I. And I don't want to own anything until I know I found the place where me and things belong together. I'm not quite sure where that is just yet, but I know what it's like, she smiled and let the cat drop to the floor. It's like Tiffany's, she said. Not that I give a hoot about jewelry. Diamonds, yes, but it's tacky to wear diamonds before you're 40, and even that's risky. They only look right on the really old girls. Maria Upinskaya, wrinkles and bones, white hair and diamonds. I can't wait. But that's not why I'm mad about Tiffany's. Listen, you know those days when you've got the mean reds? No, she said slowly. No. The blues are because you're getting fat or maybe it's been raining too long. You're sad, that's all. But the mean reds are horrible. You're afraid and you sweat like hell, but you don't know what you're afraid of. Except something bad is going to happen, only you don't know what it is. You've had that feeling? Quite often. Some people call it angst. All right, angst, but what do you do about it? Well, a drink helps. I've tried that. I've tried aspirin, too. Rusty thinks I should smoke marijuana, and I did that for a while, but it only makes me giggle. What I've found does the most good is just to get into a taxi and go to Tiffany's. It calms me down right away. The quietness and the proud look of it. Nothing very bad could happen to you there. Not with all those kind men in their nice suits and that lovely smell of silver and alligator wallets. If I could find a real-life place that made me feel like Tiffany's, then I'd buy some furniture and give the cat a name. Friends, I can't tell you how much I love this story. Goodness, in 1955, the year we're in, let's talk about getting some happiness for Carol. She will find a real-life place that makes her feel like Tiffany's. This is in the form of a new love, as it is in 1955, when Carol meets an up-and-coming Broadway performer named Walter Matthau. Walter Matthau was starring alongside Carol in Will Success Spoil Rock Hunter. Carol had never actually heard of Walter Matthau before, nor had really anyone else outside of the Broadway or theater world. It would be years before Walter Matthau 
would become a movie star or a household name. Walter Matthau was unhappily married, and Carol at the time was actively dating many different people. Still, Carol finds Walter to be intelligent and kind, and the two share a raunchy sense of humor and very easy conversation. Soon, though, having never had a one-night stand, Carol decides that Walter Matthau would be the perfect candidate. Instead of a one-night stand, though, Carol ended up falling deeply and hopelessly in love with him. Although Carol had no way of knowing it at the time in 1955, she would stay deeply and hopelessly in love with Walter Matthau for the rest of her life. Carol described Walter as having, quote, the ultimate sexuality with the most beautiful romanticism, unquote. She said they slept together everywhere, and she also said that never changed even as they were both well into their senior years. The affair with Carol and Walter went on for about four years before they were married. Carol had resigned herself to be with him even if they never married at all. She felt she just simply couldn't be happy without him. And while Walter had many great qualities, he was a inveterate gambler just like Saroyan. But Carol didn't care. When the pair married in 1959, Gloria Vanderbilt and Truman Capote were both unhappy and felt that Carol was making a terrible mistake to marry a poor actor who couldn't provide her with the lifestyle that they felt Carol deserved. Early in their marriage, the couple do face many pressures. Carol and Walter both have unpleasant ex-spouses. Each both have two children from their previous marriages and, well, not a lot of money to go around. The first six years of their marriage, Walter does not gamble at all, but that was only because he was so in debt from the gambling he'd done earlier in his life that the bookies wouldn't take any of his bets. Walter and Carol do welcome their only child together, a son named Charles, in December of 1962. Walter Matthau continues to be very successful on the stage, being nominated for a Tony Award in 1959 and winning Tony Awards in 1962 and 1965. His big movie breakthrough would happen when the play he had won a Tony for in 1965 was made into a movie. That play and movie were called The Odd Couple, and after the movie came out, Walter Matthau became a household name and one of Hollywood's most successful actors. Although Walter began gambling again after the first part of their marriage, Carol never confronted him about it. She said she wanted her husband to be happy, so she overlooked such faults. Carol's good friend Maureen Stapleton says of Carol's tolerance and complacence, she has the gifts of a born courtesan. Walter and Carol become part of the Hollywood establishment. They were one of the few couples who had a happy and long-lasting marriage, being married for 41 years until Walter's death in 2000. They are great friends with Jack Lemon and his wife Felicia. Felicia says of Carol, I never met a woman before I met Carol who really let her imagination go. Carol Marcus was deeply affected by the death of her lifelong friend, Una O'Neill Chaplin. She spent a great deal of time with Una after Charlie's death, visiting Una in Switzerland and having Una come to stay with her in California. Although Una's cause of death in 1991 was pancreatic cancer, Carol maintains that Una died of a broken heart, having never recovered after Charlie Chaplin's death. Carol will mourn her friend Una for the rest of her life. In reflecting upon the close friendships that Carol shares with Gloria and Una, Carol writes, They were those opalescent girls who danced through those beautiful romantic nights. They both had wonderful minds, though utterly different. Gloria made more choices than Una and I. In a way, she has lived more. She has tried more. 
She is interested in more. But Una and I were luckier. At some point in their adulthood, Carol does become estranged from her Saroyan children. Neither the children nor Carol ever comment on the cause of this estrangement. The Saroyan children were also estranged from their father. Aram Saroyan wrote the book Trio, Una Chaplin, Carol Mathau, Gloria Vanderbilt, Portrait of an Intimate Friendship in 1985. He is a successful poet and writer. Carol's daughter, Lucy Saroyan, was an actress and later became a photographer. Lucy died in 2003, just three months before her mother, of cirrhosis of the liver due to hepatitis C. Carol and Walter's son, Charlie, is a director of film and television movies. He directed a movie adaptation of Truman Capote's novella, The Grass Harp, in 1995. Charlie remained close to his parents until their deaths. Of getting older, Carol wrote, One finally shows up on one's own face after a certain age, and it is that appearance of you on your face that makes all the difference. There is no old age. There is, as there always was, just you. Carol Grace Marcus Saroyan Mathau died at the age of 78 on July the 21st, 2003, of a cerebral aneurysm. Carol was buried in the same grave as Walter in Westwood Village Memorial Cemetery in Los Angeles. Y'all, what a story, Carol Grace, Marcus Saroy, and Mathau, and her best friends, Gloria Vanderbilt and Una O'Neill Chaplin, as well as her oldest friend, Truman Capote, who knew from all those years ago that Carol was made of moonbeams, and I have to agree. Thank you so, so much, friends, for tuning in today. I can't tell you how much I appreciate you listening, telling your friends for your kind reviews and your support over at patreon.com slash done and done. Y'all are made of moonbeams. For Patreon folks, I do have a bit of a done drop coming at the end of this episode with a little bit of a chance meeting between Carol in her early life and three very famous literary ladies. Remember, these done drops go to patrons at all levels. And for our $5 and up supporters, this week on Not Done Yet on Patreon, we are going to be exploring a few more famous literary parties. Be on the lookout for that one coming on Not Done Yet this week. And everyone, you moonbeam delights, we will be back. In the next episode with Truman Capote's early years in New York City, tune in next Monday for the next episode of Capote's Coterie. And until we meet again, friends, stay curious and keep on investigating. Thanks for listening to the Done and Done podcast, a Hemlock Creatives production. You can email us at doneanddone at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram at doneanddonepodcast. For further information about our episodes or sources, you can find us online at www.doneanddone.com. See you next week, friends.